I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. A word about the letter to the Ephesians. This epistle was probably written around 63 AD while Paul was in prison in Rome. Ephesus was far away from Jerusalem, 700 miles or so by boat over treacherous waters. Paul had previously visited there on his second missionary journey. That's back in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 to 21. Then again on his third missionary journey, which is recorded in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, and chapter 20, verse 31. That's when he remained there for two years, preaching in the synagogues in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and 10. And that was in the school of Tyrannus, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 9. And also in private houses, he taught in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. We see that recorded. The Ephesian church consisted of Gentile believers, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Now, keep in mind, the Gentiles are key here in understanding the book of Ephesians. We find the standard introduction by Paul in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are the typical points we see Paul emphasizing at the beginning of most of his epistles. He establishes his apostleship as coming from Jesus Christ by the will of God. He directs this letter to the saints in Ephesus. Also, he calls them faithful. And then Paul extends grace and peace to his audience, acknowledging that both of these come from God and Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, grace means unmerited favor. If you'd like to know more about uh, grace and peace and the words and the way they're used in the New Testament, then look at the notes on Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where we deal with those in depth. In verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, we find uh, Paul talking about our Christian heritage. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will." that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, Paul kicks this letter off by establishing who we are and how we got here. And he says all of this in one really long Greek sentence. It starts in verse 3, and that one Greek sentence doesn't end until the completion of verse 14. Now, let's look at the components of this long sentence that extends from verses 3 to 14. First of all, we see in verse 3 that we're blessed. The Greek word eulog there is used three times in this sentence. First as an adjective, then as a verb, and finally as a noun. Because God is blessed to be praised or commended, those in Christ are also blessed, which means spiritually consecrated for heavenly purposes. Then we find in verse 4 that we are chosen in Him since before the foundation of the world. In other words, God has always known who would receive Jesus Christ as Savior. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. And then we see also in verse 4 that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, does this phrase speak of our conduct before the world, or does it speak of our position in Christ before God? Well, of course, God desires that we should live our lives before the world in a holy fashion and without blame. But this verse appears to be referencing our set-apart position before God as a result of being chosen. In other words, because Jesus Christ paid our sin debt, as believers we are, before God, holy and without blame. On the other hand, Peter used the same adjective, holy, the Greek word hagios, which means set-apart, he uses that same word holy in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 to indicate a believer's responsibility to set forth a Christ-like example before the world. Context is the only thing that we can use to make the differentiation of intent when we see this in Scripture. We see in verse 5 that we are predestinated. To what? Well, to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. And why is that? Well, there's your answer according to the good pleasure of His will. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. And then we see in verse 6 the phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. This phrase further explains the predestinated of verse 5, as verse 6 begins in the Greek accusative case. It thus provides the object for the end of verse 6. In other words, we are predestinated because it is His will, for which he is to be praised because of his grace, causing him to do so. Grace, from the Greek word charis, means unmerited favor. If you'd like more information on the context and the usage of the word grace, then look at the article entitled Important Salvation Words in Romans, which you'll find attached to the uh, study the page of BibleTrack.org for the reading of Romans chapters 1 through 4. Then in verse 6, we see the result. It says, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. This phrase means that we are members of God's family, the body of Christ. In verse 7, we find the phrase, in whom we have redemption through his blood. This refers to the mention of Jesus Christ in verse 5. Our redemption is through Jesus Christ. The Greek word for redemption here is apolutrosis. In secular Greek writings, the word was used to denote a ransom payment. It's quite appropriate, then, that this word is used ten times in the New Testament to specify the means by which God allows us to go to heaven. It's through a redemptive process. 
We were lost, but by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, God redeemed us. Then we find the phrase in verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. This phrase is included to specifically define redemption through His blood. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And verse 7, we also see, according to the riches of His grace. Grace, as I mentioned, means unmerited favor, comes from the Greek word charis. No works for salvation, it's a free gift. More about this grace of verse 7, as Paul adds, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence in verse 8. The grace by which we were saved abounded toward us at salvation, resulting in wisdom and prudence. Two words are used here, meaning almost the same thing. The Greek word Sophia, translated wisdom, can be understood in the context as knowing the will of God. The Greek word phronesis, translated prudent, can be understood as the ability to take the wisdom from God and correctly determine how best to apply it. Paul wants us to understand that through grace we have both. Now let's talk about the results of this wisdom and prudence of verse 7 when Paul says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will in verse 9. A mystery, the Greek word mysterion, means in the New Testament rendering, that which cannot be known naturally. In a general sense, the word means that which was previously hidden. In either sense, the Spirit provided the wisdom and prudence of verse 7, which reveals to believers the mystery of His will. By the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, not actually mentioned until we get down to verse 13, we know, or at least we should know, God's will. So why are believers now given the opportunity to have previously hidden mysteries revealed? Well, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Verse 9. It was God's will to provide it to us. It's just that simple. And then we find in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Here's the mystery, by the way, of verse 9 defined. Dispensation. Dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which means management. That's the dispensation or management of the fullness of times. That's clear in this verse. The Greek neuter definite article used twice is appropriately translated things, or more specifically, the things in heaven and the things on earth. These things are only gathered together in one, beginning with the millennium, when everything is under Christ's rule. No other period of time previous to the millennium meets this criteria. Paul gives some extra detail on this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. Then in verse 11, we have the phrase, in whom, being Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. Believers are in the millennium plan, and thereafter, as a matter of fact, and they're there as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's according to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And how did we come to be part of this millennium proposition anyway? Well, there it is in verse 11, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Again, that's verse 11. It's another feature included with predestination, which we'll talk about more fully in just a few moments. Now for a small Jew-Gentile distinction we find in verse 12. It says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. The usage of the Greek plural personal pronoun translated we here 
uh, along with the Greek plural definite article and verb translated who first trusted, undoubtedly refers to the Jews rather than to only Paul's personal salvation. Ephesian Gentiles show up in the next verse. It says in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted. Notice that in the King James Version that trusted there is italicized. In the Greek text, the thought is there, but the word isn't actually there. Here we have a reference to the salvation of the Ephesian Gentiles. And then in verse 13, we also have this phrase, After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Word of truth, by the way, equals gospel of your salvation. And also in verse 13, In whom also after that ye believed. The Greek word for believe there is pistuo, means to exercise faith in. It's in the Greek aorist tense, indicating a point in time. In other words, because they believed, exercised faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, at a point in time in the past, therefore they are saved. The result of having believed is seen in this phrase, in verse 13, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I've written an article entitled, um, the earnest of the Spirit, and it's on the, the the page, same page here as the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can look for it in the topic section of the main page of BibleTrack.org. The fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit guarantees, that's the earnest payment, guarantees that our eternal security rests in Christ and not ourselves. And then in verse 14 we have this phrase, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Again, that's verse 14. In other words, our inheritance is secured by a deposit, an earnest payment, if you will, until the actual physical redemption, meaning going to heaven, takes place. Again, look at the article I've written entitled Earnest of the Spirit for more details there. Now, that brings us to the close of a very long 12-verse Greek sentence. Now, what about election, foreknowledge, and predestination? Well, the following verses from Ephesians chapter 1 have caused concern with some. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, some people have used this passage of Scripture, along with others, to declare that man has no say whatsoever in his own salvation experience, in his own spiritual birth. Well, the fact is, God is omniscient. It's just one of his attributes. He did know from the foundation of the world who would receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior and who wouldn't. This foreknowledge has been misunderstood by many in light of the fact that man is not capable of comprehending how one might have foreknowledge without, well, abusing it, if you will. I once heard the late evangelist B.R. Lakin say that he was, as he was advancing in years, he said, if I could know where I was going to die, I would just never go there. As I said, we can only imagine aggressively acting upon foreknowledge were we to have it. Well, not so with God. He knows, but allows us to take our own course of action nonetheless. However, the fact that he knows makes it appropriate for Paul to declare that those who are saved are predestinated. So the fact that God knows 
doesn't alter the fact that he still has given us, man, the choice to receive Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Now, if you're looking for a fuller discussion of foreknowledge, election, and predestination, then check out my commentary on Romans chapter 9. Now, there's a link to it on this page, the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can just go to the uh, passage index on the main page of BibleTrack.org and go right to it. Romans chapter 9. Then in chapter 1, beginning with verse 15 down through verse 23, we find the tools of a mature believer. Verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. These nine verses are packed full as well. In verses 15 and 16, Paul tells the Ephesians that after hearing of their faith, he's praying for them. Then we see another big, long Greek sentence in verses 17 to 23 that outlines the specifics of Paul's prayer for them. Now let's take a close look at the prayer for these Ephesians. First of all, he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him in verse 17. Here we see that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. By the Holy Spirit, we acquire our knowledge of God. Likewise, John warned against false teachers spreading false doctrine and declared that the Holy Spirit should be our guide in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27 that they would fully understand, number two, what accompanies salvation in Jesus Christ. That's in verse 18. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as referenced in verse 17. Believers have rights, rights as theirs. Thus, the accompanying phrase regarding our inheritance as saints, as in believers. And then thirdly, he prays that they would fully embrace the power of God available to usward who believe, he says in verse 19. Now, Paul's still talking about his prayer for them. If there's any question in anyone's mind about who Jesus Christ is, what he did and what he's doing now, Paul answers that question in verses 20 to 23. In verse 20, he points out that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul deals extensively with this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. Then he points out that Jesus is at God's right hand right now, verse 20 also. Christ is at God's right hand. It's based upon the prophetic Psalm 110, where verse 1 there begins with this, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This right hand reference is used by Paul a number of times in the New Testament. You may want to look at those notes on Psalm 110 for more details. Then, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe. 
also, by the way, clearly stated in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where there it says, For in him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Then lastly, Jesus is the head of the church, his body. That's seen in verses 22 and 23. This concept is also seen in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, where there Paul writes, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul elaborates on Christ's relationship to the church later in this letter to the Ephesians when we get over to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. That brings us to chapter 2, where we see that grace is through faith, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace he is saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, here's a question. What was your spiritual condition before you got saved? Well, here it is. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Right there in verse 1. All of us were spiritually dead, prior to salvation in Christ. We had no hope of heaven, no way to redeem ourselves from hell. You'll notice in the King James Version that it says, hath he quickened, and that's italicized. Now that's to indicate that these words are not really in the original Greek text. They were added to complete a thought, a thought which is not really completed in the text until we get down to verse 5, but it is completed. And about lifestyle before salvation, what about that? Well, verse 2 says this, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The course of this world, in other words, that which comes naturally to the unregenerate mind, well, that's dictated by the prince of the power of the air, being Satan. Now, let's be careful not to see demon or devil possession here. Satan is seen in this verse as orchestrating the, quote, course of this world. As a result, those who reject Christ are seen in verse 2 as those who embrace the course dictated by Satan. Paul says, in essence, the same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, where he says, "...in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not." Verse 3 expands upon the godless lifestyle before salvation. There he calls it a lifestyle that fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He even refers to the unregenerate as the children of wrath, as in the wrath of God's judgment. Now, that's the bad news of verses 1 through 5. We turn the corner in verse 4 with God's mercy, and then the good news, that God hath quickened us together with Christ in verse 5. 
Quickened here means made alive. In this case, the spiritually dead are made spiritually alive. Notice Paul sneaks a preview into verse 5 when he says, By grace you are saved. That's fully developed in verses 8 through 10. Through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we're made alive to live with Christ in heaven. And that's all done by grace through faith, a faith relationship with God through Christ. Verses 6 and 7 give us the essence of our spiritual position in Christ. We see in verse 6 that we're raised up with Christ. And in verse 6 also that we are already seated with Christ in heaven. As such, we are in store for the manifestation of exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Again, it should be emphasized that positionally the resurrection and seat are ours right now. Think about it. When a king is not actually seated on his throne, he's still the king. Well, that's the idea here. As believers, we are resurrected, seated, and to be recipients of blessings through Christ Jesus. And that's because of our relationship with Christ. Verses 8 and 9 are popular verses because they state the simplicity of the salvation experience. In other words, 100% grace and 0% works. As a matter of fact, the phrase, and that not of yourselves, in verse 8, means that we are unable to do anything to save ourselves whatsoever. Consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We are saved when we are drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, and subsequently accept that offer. Titus 3.5 says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Greek word for renewing there means renovation. Lost people need a renovation that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.10 adds the role of works, but not in the context of securing one's salvation. Works are what follow after salvation as believers are indwelled at salvation, in other words, filled and led by the Holy Spirit. If you'd like more information on the filling and leading of the Holy Spirit, then look at my notes on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. And again, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, there's a link right there. You can click the link and go right to that. Now, just in case the reader may be confused about what's involved in salvation in Christ, let's look closely at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. One is saved by grace. Now, saved means free from the wrath of God. And grace means unmerited favor, as in we don't deserve to be saved. If you'd like to see more information regarding uh, these two words, saved and grace, then Look at the article entitled, Important Salvation Words. The link's on this page, or you can go to the written notes on the main page of BibleTrack.org and find under the uh, middle box there the topical index. Through faith, well, that represents the process. The Greek word for faith is pistis, and that word speaks to the act of exercising complete trust. The phrase, and not of yourselves, takes away any notion one might have that somehow eternal life is deserved, because it certainly is not. Salvation, by the way, is the free gift of God through the process that we see in verse 8. Salvation is not of works. No one in heaven will ever be able to boast that they deserve to be there. So what about the works then? 
one might ask. Well, here they are in verse 10, but not for the purpose of acquiring salvation. The Holy Spirit-led course of the new believer is to live a life fruitful with good works, being godly works. To avoid misunderstanding, it's a good idea to include verse 10 with each and every citation of verses 8 and 9. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, Paul calls for an end to the name-calling. Verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And they might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord." and whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So, what name did the first century Jews call the Gentiles? Well, the answer to that is they called them the uncircumcision. Ooh, that hurts. However, in Christ Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. It looks like the Gentiles here catch a break. Previously, Gentiles had no interest, no interest whatsoever in Israel, no citizenship within Israel. The covenants that God had made with Israel excluded Gentiles, and therefore they were without hope and without God, we see in verse 12. But having been that far away in the past, now the blood of Christ has brought Gentiles near, we see in verse 13. As a matter of fact, he broke down the division between us, the Jews, versus the Gentiles, when he died on the cross by his death and resurrection in verse 14. Yeah, but the Jews were very proud of their law of Moses, and they took great pride in keeping that law. But look at verse 15. It says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So what did Christ do with the law of Moses when he died on the cross? Well, it says he abolished it. Afterward, even Gentiles, having been raised from childhood, without knowing anything about the law of Moses, are equally as righteous before God as the Jews themselves. Many Christians incorrectly adopt and hang on to the law of Moses, and especially the Ten Commandments, as something they are to integrate into their Christian walk after salvation. But that's not so. The law has been abolished by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We find the same declaration clearly stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11 and also in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. Now, if you'd like to look more into this aspect of the Christian with regard to the law of Moses, then there's a link there that you can click on that takes you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 
verses 6 through 18, where I deal extensively with Paul's own words of talking about the law having been done away. I should take this opportunity to give a greater explanation about verse 14 here, which says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What about that middle wall of partition? Well, there was actually erected in Herod's temple in Jesus' day a wall of partition past which Gentiles were not permitted to go. Here's some information about that wall uh, found in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. I quote, In the year 1871, while excavations were being made on the site of the temple by the Palestine Exploration Fund, M. Clement Ganot discovered one of the pillars which Josephus describes as having been erected upon the very barrier or middle wall of partition to which Paul refers. This pillar is now preserved in the museum at Constantinople and is inscribed with a Greek inscription in capital or unsealed letters, which is as follows. It says, No man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure round the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. While Paul was writing the epistle to the Ephesians at Rome, this barrier in the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. Yet the chained prisoner of Jesus Christ was not afraid to write that Jesus Christ had broken down the middle wall of partition and had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, strangers and foreigners, to all the privileges of access to God in ancient times possessed by Israel alone. That separation between Jew and Gentile was done away forever in Christ. Now in verses 16 to 22, we see that Paul really drives this point home of uniting Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. In verse 16, he reconciled Jews and Gentiles with the animosity between them put away. In verse 17, the same peace is preached to Jew and Gentile alike. In verse 18, the same Holy Spirit gives equal access to God to the Jews and to the Gentiles who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, which, by the way, is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, where it says, For with one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into the same spirit. Verse 19 here says, While the Gentiles were strangers to God before, now they are fellow citizens with the saints. And then in verse 20, we find the cornerstone reference, which is based upon the prophetic Psalm 118, verse 22. The inclusion of Gentiles is validated by the prophets and the apostles. And finally, in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter, Jews and Gentiles together form the strong foundation for the working of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to chapter 3. The mystery of the gospel is revealed. Verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. 
Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In verse 1 here, Paul makes an interesting statement. He's in jail because of his insistence on taking the gospel to the Gentiles. After all, his arrest in Acts chapter 21 came about because the Jews were infuriated with him. He had the audacity in their minds to take their sacred religion and mix it in with a Gentile offering. Paul made a considerable sacrifice to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So exactly what was this new revelation that Paul was willing to even die for? Well, look at verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That's the revelation that makes our salvation possible. But it's also the revelation that threatened the special place with God the Jews were so proud of. The Jews and even many Jewish Christians in the first century disregarded the numerous Old Testament prophecies regarding entrance of Gentiles into complete and equal communion with the Jews. Look at the notes on Isaiah chapter 49 for a fuller discussion of that concept. This brings us to the discussion of a theological term known as dispensationalism. Bible students frequently ask one another, are you a dispensationalist? The term has been severely misused and taken out of context by many. Without dealing with that misuse, let me just point out that Paul declares himself to be a dispensationalist in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2 when he says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. In verse 4, Paul goes on to explain. He says, By revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now, a mystery in this context is that which cannot be known by the natural mind, which was previously hidden, we see in verse 5. But this mystery was supernaturally revealed to Paul through revelation directly from God. And what was this mystery? Well, again, there it is in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So, to summarize, God committed to Paul the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to him by revelation, which was a direct word from God. This mystery, that which cannot be known by the natural mind, was revealed to Paul, declaring salvation through the atonement of Christ on the cross to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul categorizes this revelation as a dispensation. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia. It means administration or management. So here it is. The dispensation given to Paul was a new administration between God and man. And that's not to say that favor with God was not always a matter of faith, because it was. It was, and we see that all the way back, we have that clear statement in Genesis chapter 15, 6, with regard to Abraham, when it says, with regard to Abraham's relationship with God, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. However, 
The atonement of Jesus on the cross as our Redeemer causes Paul to categorize the period after the cross as a distinct dispensation. Incidentally, Paul indicates in verse 5 that he's not alone in this doctrinal coup when he says, It is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Although he had doctrinal allies, Paul was the one in jail for spreading his doctrine of Jew-Gentile equality as believers in Jesus Christ. Now notice Paul's additional comments regarding this dispensation which had been committed to him. In verse 7, he indicates that God directed him to this controversial ministry to the Gentiles. He was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. In verse 8, Paul says, I don't deserve the honor, but I've been given the responsibility of preaching to the Gentiles. Verses 9 and 10, the church of God fulfills the long-hidden mystery of fellowship among Jews and Gentiles alike. While prophesied in the Old Testament that Jews and Gentiles would one day come together as one in Isaiah chapter 49, Paul's the one to reveal that it's through the New Testament church that all of this takes place. In verses 11 and 12, we see that that was the eternal design for Jesus Christ all along. Now Paul expresses that we have boldness and access to God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Paul's writing this from jail. He's in jail because of his ministry to Gentiles, infuriating the Jews. He does not want them to feel undue anguish as Gentiles for his imprisonment. And then in verses 14 to 21 of chapter 3, Paul tells us his prayer for these Ephesians. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all ages, world without end. Amen. Well, here's another prayer for the Ephesians, which goes down through verse 21. In verses 14 and 15, Paul emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world for all time, past and present. Paul briefly deals here with a vital part of Christian living. Notice what he says in the following two verses, in verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. The power of the Christian life is achieved by the Holy Spirit dwelling within each believer. That's the key to victorious Christian living. If you want to know more about victorious Christian living, look at my notes on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. There you'll find that I deal with this concept of being led by the Holy Spirit and be given power by the Holy Spirit exhaustively. With the power of the Holy Spirit working within, the believer is able to experience the victory and confidence that we find here in verses 18 to 21. Now, don't take too much time trying to break these verses down. It's one very strong statement intended to overwhelm the Ephesians with the sense of the power and authority of Jesus Christ.
Notice the key in verse 19, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Jesus Christ, by the way, is the fullness of God. Paul writes in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, a verse that I actually quoted earlier, says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Paul is, in the strongest words possible, emphasizing how comprehensive God's power is within the Spirit-led Christian. Now, that being the case, Paul concludes his prayer by expressing the greatness of Jesus Christ in verse 20 by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And then Paul's equivalent at the end of his prayer in verse 21 to our amen. He extends his amen by saying, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's just one more plug for the eternal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.